0: Welcome, glad you're here. If you're visiting with us today, um, especially glad to have you. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, there are plenty of other important people for you to meet, but I would love to meet you, so if you have time at the end of the service, I'll be down front. Um, love the honor to get to hear how God led you to Solid Rock and see how we can answer any questions that you might have. Um, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, and go ahead and do that. A quick announcement. Um, This is uh, an exciting day uh, for Solid Rock. Tonight is our night of music. It's our sixth annual night of music and so um, here's kind of what that is. Those of you who've been before, it's gonna be a little different tonight but if you've never been, let me just kind of overview what tonight is about. So um, we get together once a year for our worship team, our our, uh, artists, uh, our musicians to get together and to present um, songs to us that, that that they've been writing and working on. Um, to even hear how God is stirring in their hearts to to bring these songs about. And that's always a fun part of the evening. And then we take an intermission, and then we come back and we have some type of worship experience together. Tonight is different because this is the Christmas season. Um, Our kids, pre-K through sixth grade, is gonna be, uh, they're gonna be in here leading us in worship at the end. So I'm excited about that. We're kind of combining uh, Christmas special with Night of Music uh, for one evening at 6.30 this evening. So hopefully you'll come be a part of that. Um, we, uh, we should have uh, enough space for everybody to come. We'll, we'll put out extra chairs if we need to, um, but that's at 6.30 this evening uh, for Night of Music. Hope to see you back for that. Um, all right, so it's the third uh, Sunday in the Advent series. Today we are looking at specifically the kingship of Jesus. And before we uh, even get to the Bible, I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges that we face um, specifically as American citizens in seeing Jesus as king. Now wholesale, there's always difficult in seeing Jesus as king regardless of where you grow up because, um, because of a lot of things going on inside the human heart. Namely, we like to make ourselves king, right? And so that's true of every human being. But in the United States, we have some specific challenges um, that we face in seeing Jesus as, as king. And a lot of it has to do with the DNA, uh, the mindset of our culture and where we come from. So I'm gonna give you just a little history if I can. So before um, before the, the separatists and 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 folks from England began to move to the New World, um, there was this kind of this, oh, this 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 upheaval within the church that was happening, and it was a good thing. So what had happened in the church is that over time the church had begun to exchange biblical truth for ecclesiastical authority, meaning the authority of the church, and so it had gotten to a point um, to where the church um, would tell the people what the Bible says, and the people couldn't read the Bible in their own language, and so they just had to trust the church. Well, this led to a really dark time period in the history of the church. A lot of corruption took place during this time period. Well, uh, it, got, it got to a certain point where there were some, some guys who were uh, priests Uh, within the church who began to read the Bible and began to realize that what the church was saying was different from what was being uh, expressed here in the truths of the Holy Scriptures. And so these guys began to stand up, guys like Martin Luther, and this led to the spark of a reformation within the church. Now one of the um, identity markers of the reformation was that since if you combine church and state together, right, which had been done, and if that leads to corruption, then the answer to that is this, that the church, every believer, right, is, is a priest, and so therefore every local congregation needs to be autonomous, and so that was a theology that came out of this reformation, so that's happening in the backdrop. Then you begin to have folks, most of whom uh, would associate themselves with Christianity, moving from Europe to the New World as separatists, um, with this ambition to start a new life, to see the new world, but a lot of them with this deep angst to get away from the tyranny of the king. And so that's why, the colonies established here in the United States of America, for the most part, were dead set against uh, being uh, loyal to the king. Right? They wanted to separate from that and govern themselves. So there was this autonomy, both religiously and politically, kind of embedded in the DNA or the psyche of many who traveled uh, the ocean to make it here and to begin to establish colonies and set up. Homesteads and those sorts of things, right? So in the, in the DNA of our American history is this idea, right, that, that kingship leads to tyranny and that's not good. And so the, the, whether that's within the church or just talking about politically speaking, so the, the answer to that then is that people need to govern themselves, right? And so this, this led to this idea of democracy. Now, it's interesting because most of us grew up learning about these things in school and our our assumption is that democracy is better, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not, but that's our assumption. That's the way history is taught is that the people need to govern themselves in kind of a democratic system where everybody has a say, everybody has a vote, and that's somehow better. Now, um, at the time of... of, of you know, the, the Revolutionary War, um, you had two different sides to that. There were some who came to America who were loyalists, right? They were committed to the king, they were committed uh, to England. And, uh, and so one of those was uh, Sir John Acton. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, no, no, uh, was Ma- a guy named Mather Biles, who, who coined this phrase which is better? You guys may remember this quote from The Patriot which is better? A tyrant 3,000 miles away or 3,000 tyrants a mile away, which Mel Gibson kind of took that phrase and modified it a little bit in the movie Patriot, right? Which is better, right? He says, why, tell me why should I trade a tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants a mile away? And the point of that, um, that Biles quote was, was this, that the, the idea is to separate from tyranny, but the reality is what you're talking about in democracy is 3,000 tyrannies, 3,000 kingdoms, which became three million, which has become 30 million, which has become however many people live in the United States in this democratic world. This idea that each individual is is unto himself or herself a king or a queen, free to establish their domain, to make their law in life, to establish their kingdom, their rules, as long as your kingdom doesn't tread on my kingdom, and my kingdom doesn't tread on your kingdom, we all have our own kingdoms. And that's the idea of democracy, right? And every king and queen gets a say, gets a vote. And so, right, that was kind of, the tyranny of one king was traded then for the tyranny of the multitude. Now, there were um, among the, the, the separatists, guys like, I mentioned earlier, Sir John Acton who said this about kingship and about monarchy, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Now that mindset was embedded in the DNA of our culture, that if any one man or one woman rises to absolute power, then the the trajectory is not gonna be good. Now, there's truth in that, why? Because since Genesis 3, at the fall of man, right, any man or any woman who, who was in a position of hierarchy at some point or another failed the people. So at, at the fall, in Genesis 3, what we have is this corruption of hierarchy in general. We see this with the marriage, right? Adam and Eve, the first thing God says to Adam and Eve is what? Oh, by the way, this whole thing isn't going to work well anymore. Because see, Adam her desire is going to be for you, meaning she's going to desire to take you down. And so you're going to respond to that with this, this equally evil desire to dominate over her. And so that began to dilute and dissolve and to crumble and... And we see all the way into like Genesis 10 and 11 where man begins to establish his own kingdom with the Tower of Babel and the City of Babel to do what? To build a great name for himself. And so there's some truth in this idea that that absolute power absolutely corrupts every time. Why? Because of the fall. Because of sin nature. No man, no woman can govern the people righteously. Now, you might see examples where people get it right for a, for a season, right? David had his glory days, King David, right? where well, He got it right for a while, but it didn't last. Amen. Why? Because ultimately, his heart was deceitful. Amen. <coughs> now, here's, here's the reality. Because we live in a fallen world, no man or no woman will do as a monarch. Right so the next best option seems to be democracy. However, we're beginning to see that unravel a little bit, aren't we? Right, with the hyperpolarization, like it's beginning to fail us on some level. Now this is not a doomsday prep sermon, like I'm not telling you to go like stock up on beans cuz the world's coming to an end, but we're beginning to see kind of the fray, aren't we? Some unraveling, some assumptions that used to be there that made democracy work aren't there anymore. Right, so it's beginning to fail us but here's the second reality. And we have to go back to pre-Genesis 3 to see this reality. You were meant for a king and a kingdom. You were not meant and created for a democracy. You were created to be subject to a righteous, good, worthy king. You were meant for a king and kingdom. Now we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. We're going to start here and we're going to end in Matthew chapter 2. And so what we're going to first look at is a Messianic prophecy. It was the foretelling of what was to come. It was God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, not only about what was to come, but more importantly, who was to come. The Messiah. What would the Messiah be like? How will I know when I see him or her? Like, how will I recognize this Messiah? And so God gives us these prophecies. And so around seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called I love it when the Bible says, this is what's going to happen. So prophecies are not these these episodes of wishful thinking that God throws up into the air to allow the wind to blow them and settle wherever they may. I love it when God says, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. It's what I'm going to do. And so what God is saying is, I am not only gonna send you a Messiah, this is what you're looking for. Now, the first part of verse six, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's very Christmassy. You probably have a card in your house with that on it, right? Now, but when we keep moving forward, we're gonna get this really vivid description of the child that is going to be born, the first of which is the phrase, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, this has both symbolic um, or, or a metaphor uh, imagery in it, but it also has literal meaning, and here's what I mean by that. So the, 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 the symbolism in that is that this Messiah would come and bear the weight of the burden of the government. It would be upon his what? His shoulders. He will carry the burden of the weight of the government, but in a literal sense, this was a description of how the king was robed, how the king was marked, The symbol of his government was draped where? Across his shoulders. And so this phrase, in this particular time, explicitly pointed to a coming king. This Messiah wouldn't simply be a great religious leader for you to follow. Wouldn't be just simply a good teacher with some good advice. What God tells us through Isaiah, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for a king. This baby to be born will carry the weight of the government upon his shoulders because he will be a king. And we get four different names for this coming king starting with wonderful counselor. Think about this, the counsel from this king will be what, wonderful. Because in almost every other human experience, you don't want the king to speak, why? Because when the king speaks, it's gonna require something of me right? Something that will benefit him but will cost me something, whether it's taxes or tariffs or he wants me to go to war or whatever. I don't like it when the king speaks. Just leave me alone. But this king will be different. Why? Because when he opens his mouth, something will resonate with you. It will draw you in. You'll long for the king to speak more, to hear more from this king. Why? Because he will be a wonderful counselor. Not only will he be a wonderful counselor, he will be mighty God. Make no mistake about it. The idea that Jesus was the Son of God, full deity, right? That's not hidden in the scriptures. God is saying, not only am I sending you a king, right? This king will be deity. Now, the concept of king and deity being this being combined into one person was not unusual. Matter of fact, it's actually really common uh, in kingdoms for kings to be associated with deities. But the difference is, in almost every other example, kings demanded that the subjects acknowledge them as king. Right, we see this like with King Nebuchadnezzar. What do he say to the citizens of his kingdom? when you hear the music, do what? Bow down and pay homage and worship who? Me. Why? Because I'm deity. And so the people, because they didn't want to lose their head, right? Not because they were convinced he was God, because they want to lose their head, did what? Okay, we'll bow down and sing some songs and we'll worship you. And then what happens is at the end of that king's life, he dies and the people go, oh, not much of a deity, huh? And then replaced by what? Another king who would set himself up or a queen who would set herself up as a deity, right? So these Combining those two concepts was not that uncommon, but what's being prophesied here is that this coming king actually will be a deity, will be more than man. Now think about it. At this point in human history, we don't have any real examples of democracy or autonomy, like kingship, it was kingship or nothing. Whether you were barbarians living in a tribe out in the middle of wherever, Somebody was at the top of the hierarchy. Somebody, whether they got there from power or because they were really intelligent or however they got there, they got there, right? And so the idea of of kingship was was widespread and common. And every people group, every tribe, every people group who experienced this had experienced what? A king or a queen who dies, who displays their mortality at the end of their life, but then what? Well, well, I guess we'll pick another one. So then you pick another one and then you put him or her up as deity and then at the end of their life, they fail you and then, right? And then just over and over and over again. So this, think about it. This was a pretty big statement being made. This like this king's gonna be different human beings <laughs> from all other kings. This king will be mighty God. The next name here is everlasting father. This uh, speaks of the nature of this king as an eternal king. Um, a majority of, maybe even most of it, I would say a majority of the explicit messianic prophecies talk about the forever nature of the coming Messiah. Even like when, when God is speaking to King David and says like one of your descendants will sit upon your throne, right? And so that could have easily just been Solomon except for that one phrase that says what? Forever. One of your descendants will sit upon your throne, David, forever. Right? An eternal king is coming. Not one who will rule well for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and be dead and gone, but an eternal king, an everlasting father, and then last but not least, the prince of peace. And we talked about this last week. Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He came to be peace. Peace right? We talked about it. It's not, peace is not this package that Jesus brings to us and says, if you need some peace, open this and just sprinkle it, you know, on your kids and sprinkle it on your life and then you'll have peace. Jesus says, no, if you want peace, you got to come right here to me. Like, I am your peace. An abiding relationship with me is the only place you'll find real peace. And so this coming Messiah would come as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father and the true prince of peace. Now, Verse seven uh, talks about the increase of the government and the peace, there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So now we get to the New Testament with the nativity and this announcement of the birth of Jesus. And we have these things lingering in the back of our mind, these Messianic prophecies that are telling us what to look for telling us how to recognize, and so the people were, they were watching with every rise of a political leader or popular religious leader, like they were watching, eyes on them. Do they fit the description? Is this the one? Is he the one we should follow? Are are you the one? Remember the question of John the Baptist? Are are you the one? Are we we expecting somebody else? I need to know, and so we go to Luke chapter 1, we're gonna look briefly at this announcement from the angel to Mary. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, here's what I love about that. Of all the things the angel could have said to Mary, you're gonna get pregnant, you're gonna have a baby and your baby is gonna walk on water. Your baby is gonna raise people from the dead. Your baby is gonna die on a cross for the sins of the people. Your baby's gonna turn water into wine. Of all the true things the angel could have announced, he chooses to announce what? The kingship of the baby. Like that's the main thing that he's announcing to Mary. Mary, you're about to get pregnant. There's gonna be a baby in your womb. Oh, by the way, your baby's gonna be a king. Like this is a big deal. What I wanna do now is I wanna turn to the actual nativity in the Gospel of Matthew chapter two and this is where we're gonna land today. So we have all these messianic prophecies lingering, kind of echoing in the back of our mind, a king is coming, a king is coming, a king is coming. We've got this angelic experience with young Mary, You're about to get pregnant and a king is coming. He's going to be in your womb. You're going to give birth to a king. Call him Jesus. And now we get to the nativity in Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. This part of the nativity oftentimes uh, is overlooked. The only way we, we even know anything about this part of the nativity is because when we see a nativity set, we see shepherds and we know why they're there. We see an angel somewhere, we know why the angel's there. We see animals, we know why they're there because Jesus was born in the barnyard. But what about these three jokers with gifts? <laughs> what is that all about? Sometimes we call them kings, but the Bible calls them wise men, okay? So you get these three wise men and we know, we know the nativity set, but where do they come into the story, Well, Matthew chapter two is where they come into the story, starting in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so... These guys, um, they seem to be pretty confident the Messiah's been born, right? All they need to know is where is he? We're looking. We've been we saw the star, we know the signs, we know the prophecies. He's been born. Where is he? Why why do they want to find him? So that they can worship him. Right? Now, verse 3 when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's reaction, King Herod's reaction to this announcement that a new king has been born is to what? Gather to himself the religious gurus and ask them what? Hey, tell me the prophecies. What do the prophecies say? Where is this little rug rat supposed to be born? Now, he's, he's kind of, he's got a smoke screen, doesn't he? I just want to go and worship him too. Just tell me where he's supposed to be born so I can go and offer gifts and worship this little soon-to-be king. So in verse five, they respond. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and now they're gonna quote Micah 5 which is what we talked about last week and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel so um, the, the answer is given right to the king But this answer is really significant. We talked about this even last week in Micah five, that Bethlehem was this nobody small podunk town. Nothing good was supposed to come from Bethlehem. It wasn't even really on the map. Yet, it is the geographical location that God chose and he prophesied about this. He chose to bring the Messiah, his son, into the world in Bethlehem. And so the wise men answered the king, Well, you know about Bethlehem, that small community that nobody thinks anything good comes from? Oh yeah, that's the one. But not only that, king, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd shepherd my people Israel. I want you to think about this. It's kind of like a double whammy on King Herod. It begins with, oh by the way, Herod, a king has been born. Because if you're in the position of king, right now you're in a challenge position. What do you mean a king? I'm king. No, a king has been born. So that's the first whammy. The double whammy is what? Oh, by the way, he's actually going to be a good king. (laughs) What are you saying? You're not a good king. He will shepherd his people, right? He won't be a vicious tyrant. He won't demand that his people bow down and worship him or else they lose their heads. He's going to be, not only has the king been born in Bethlehem, by the way, he's going to be a really good king. He's going to be like a shepherd. And so now, Herod is going to set up a private meeting with these wise men. Verse seven, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and what? Worship him liar. All right, verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now we know Jesus was born in a manger, but the scriptures are now going to talk about a house. So evidently, once the baby started crying, somebody let them into a house, or the word house is being used to describe the manger, because it's a house for sheep and animals. Well, I don't know, but at this point, Jesus has been born. They're following the star, and it's gonna rest over wherever Jesus is, okay? These guys are fully convinced they're about to go find the Messiah. No, no mistake about I mean, I don't know when the last time was you saw a star in the sky and started following it around, but, right? These guys are fully convinced, so they're following the star to Bethlehem. It stops over a building, Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Gospel of Matthew is trying to tell you these jokers went berserk in a good way, like worship berserk. You know, it got a little rowdy. You know, can you believe it? We're here, it's happening. He's like, you've been that excited? You know, this is like I'm trying to think of a comparison. I can't think of a comparison, but like. You know how excited you get when your team wins, or like when your team wins the championship. Like you, like we just are here. Like this is, this is good. We made it. We're we're here. Things are happening. Are you believe this? And so Matthew says, "Well, here's how I'll describe it." They rejoiced exceedingly, with what? With great joy. <laughs> These jokers got excited. Why? Because they were fully convinced they were about to behold the king. Verse eleven, and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, why? Because he's a liar, they did what? They departed to their own country by another way. Instantly they're loyal to the king, right? instantly their loyalty to Herod has now diminished, if not completely gone, because why? They're, dis, they're wholeheartedly disobeying the king, right? Not just kind of not doing what he said, doing the opposite of what he said. And so you see this, this loyalty, this affection, immediately for this baby. And so instead of going back to the king to tell him where to find the baby, they head back home. Book of Colossians chapter one talks about our king and our kingdom. A couple of verses starting in verse 13 about Jesus, this baby born in a manger, he. Who's the he? The baby born in a manger. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the Image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's you and me. You were created for Christ. You were created for a king and a kingdom. Did you catch that? You've been delivered from what? The domain of darkness. Well, that sounds good because I don't like darkness and I like being in darkness. So I've been delivered from that. But where have I been delivered to and transferred to? His kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Like that's my citizenship. Like above and beyond my loyalty and my patriotism to this country. And, and, And listen, like I'm thankful, so grateful for the men and women who have sacrificed and continue to sacrifice that we might enjoy the freedoms we enjoy, but listen to me, this country, your citizenship as an American citizen does not compare to your citizenship to the kingdom of God, it does not. You weren't meant for a democracy, you were meant for a king and a kingdom. Now, this is the best we got right now, I get it. Right? I don't want the tyrant king, okay? It's the best we've got, but even this is not good enough. It's not, why, because you were meant for a king you were meant for a kingdom. Um, I became a Christian in 1992. I was 15 years old, into my sophomore year of high school, and so I didn't grow up in church, which which meant that I was old enough when I stepped into church that um, the things that were odd stuck out to me, because I didn't grow up in it, you know, And and there were things about the church experience that were odd that I came to love. Like, why are we singing about blood? That's weird. Well, I've grown to love what that represents. The blood of Christ shed for me. There's, there's no other place that I have hope but by the blood of Christ. There were things that were odd, we're gonna take this communion representing blood and broken body and like, it's just was weird, but then I've come to love those things. But there are also things that were odd that I didn't come to love. Like, it was odd to me, we're in this experience, we're supposed to be talking about an almighty, everlasting God, that's what we're here for, we're singing songs to Him and about Him, and yet up on the stage, there's a pulpit, a cross in the middle, but there's a flag over here, it looks like a Christian flag, and then there's a United States flag, and it's all kind of on the same level. And I was confused by that, I didn't understand, like, well, which, what what are we, is this a, a political thing, or is this a religious thing? I didn't know, it was all kind of blurry for me early on. And the way that, that the lines get blurred between patriotism, right, and, and worshiping God. Amen. And like, you know, 20 years ago, if I'd have got up and said that, that'd have been like really controversial and a lot of people would run me out of church like by being, for being anti-American. I'm certainly not, but I am pro-Jesus. Amen. And the, the gospel proclaims a king and a kingdom, church. When I became a Christian, it was, it was right about the middle of the Jesus is my friend movement that kind of birthed in the, in the late 70s and really got on track in the 80s and then was you know, full-fledged in the 90s. Listen, I know the Bible says that Jesus is a friend of sinners, but what that means is that, despite the fact that you and I are sinners, he invites us in. That does not mean Jesus is our homie. Can, can, can you understand the difference? Because if I make Jesus my friend, he's no longer my king. Right? And so why does that matter? Because now the things he says have no authority. My friends say things to me all the time. They make all kinds of recommendations to me. Hey, Jason, you know what might work better than what you just did? Don't do that again. It's pretty good advice. I might take it and I might not. Because in my pride, whatever that was, I'm going to give it one more shot and try it again, whatever it was. Because that's how I, you know, my friends give me advice. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Listen, Jesus doesn't give you advice, He's a wonderful counselor. He speaks with authority, He makes commands. And so I ask you today to consider is Jesus truly your king? I'm not talking about your good luck charm. Is Jesus your king? I thought of three different ways that might be helpful in thinking about Jesus as king. One has to do with loyalty. Here's a definition of loyalty. Giving or showing firm and consistent or constant support or allegiance to a person or institution. Listen to this again. Giving or showing firm and constant support or allegiance to a person or institution. Don't we see that immediately with the wise men? Immediately, King Jesus is a baby, in a little bitty podunk town, a little bitty baby that came to hold his head up, and he has what, their loyalty. King Herod, King who? King Jesus. And I just want you to think about who has your loyalty. Does King Jesus have your consistent and firm loyalty, or do you come in and out of that loyalty? How about obedience? Well if he's a king, when he speaks, he speaks with authority, which means his subjects do what they obey. Do you obey the commands of King Jesus, listen to this, with joy? Here's why, because his commands lead to life. When Jesus says don't do that, it's because doing that leads to death. When Jesus says do this or do these things, these things always lead to life. And so there's this joy we have in obeying Jesus. Why? Because it's like this light unto my path. Like, when I obey it, it leads to good things. It doesn't always lead to the things that I think are good. Amen. <laughs> All right? Because that's my own wisdom that says, oh, this will be good. A new truck. No. She's like, no, no, no. That's, that's not good. This is good. Like, follow my commands. They lead to life. Do you joyfully, joyfully. Let me say it the way that Matthew said. Do you with exceeding joy. With exceeding joy do you obey Jesus. And then last but not least. Who or what holds the place of highest affection in your heart. Because where that is. That's where your treasure is. And that's where your worship is. Every time. Now listen, like you're called and commanded to have affection in your heart for other people besides Jesus. Yes. Your, your spouse, love them sacrificially, but not more than Jesus. Matter of fact, loving Jesus more will help you love them better. Your, little, your own little rugrats, they're cute mostly. You need to love them well. You loving your children well is a reflection of our Heavenly Father loving us well. Amen. Love your children well. It does not mean always give them what they want. Sorry. Whew. <laughs> we get that out. But love them well. But don't love them more than you love Jesus. You hear me? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then you love everybody else. And so I would ask you where your worship is. Who or what holds the greatest place of affection in your heart? And if Jesus is not the answer to your loyalty and to your obedience and to your worship, he's not your king. He's not. Now, hear this last thing. The prophecy, God could have focused on so many things in the prophecies about Jesus to let us know it was him but the prophecies focus on both his deity and his royalty. Right? The announcement from the angel could have announced lots of things about Jesus, but the angel said what? Well, Mary, the baby in your womb is going to be a king. There's a reason why we gather here on Sundays and stand and sing. We're worshiping our king. Like That's the point of the lines that we were just singing. In my life be what? Lifted up. Oh, how King Nebuchadnezzar would have loved for his people to just spontaneously sing that song to him, Mm -hmm. right? But he couldn't get them to do it, so he had to threaten them, right, with fiery furnace or a, a, a den of lions or just getting your head cut off. But Jesus is so good that he invokes that from us and we gather together as his subjects willingly and joyfully to do what? To exalt our king. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's what we do. I wanna pray um, now that God's Holy Spirit would continue working in you and whatever he stirred in you or brought to your mind and your heart that you would continue uh, wrestling with that. Maybe, maybe God's brought together or brought to your mind some, some form of rebellion in your heart. Maybe there's a part of you that's like, oh, I don't want a king. I still wanna be in control. I wanna make my rules. Maybe that would be the thing you would just lay before him today. Maybe you've just had this ongoing um, struggle with, with a particular sin, and, 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 and you've been fighting that battle on your own, trying to be king over that sin struggle, and maybe today you would just come and lay that at the feet of King Jesus and say, listen, I've got no hope unless you do something here. I need you to sustain me, I need you to fight this battle for me. Maybe there's a broken relationship that you're fully aware of, and right now you're like, oh, Christmas, I'm gonna have to spend time with this person. Or maybe King Jesus has called me to love people well, especially those people that are hard to love, and Uncle Ernie is hard to love. So maybe today it would just be like, Jesus, just fill my heart with your kind of love so that I can love others well. Uh, Whatever God's doing in your heart today, I I hope and I'm gonna pray that his Holy Spirit would continue working that out. Our prayer partners will be at the front if you want somebody to pray with you about anything going on, either something with you or your family or somebody you know. Um, But let's pray together and let's respond. Uh, King Jesus, we willfully and joyfully, we, we bow before you and we declare that you are truly our king. And you're not just any king, you're a righteous king. Matter of fact, you're the only righteous king. Time after time, Father, our humanity has failed us. We've been hurt by others, we've hurt ourselves, we... We desperately need order in our lives that comes from having a king. We need peace in our lives that can only come from the king of peace. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted, not just in this room, but in our hearts as the king of all kings. Now we ask for your Holy Spirit to continue moving God, if there's somebody here today who has never taken that step of faith to trust in King Jesus, I pray it would happen today. You would stir them and draw them to yourself. I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.